Although edited for television, tonight's thriller contains scenes of suspense and violence which may be unsuitable for young viewers. Friendly discretion is advised. Nothing can prepare you for the horror of Alien. Aliens, Book Two, Nightmare Asylum, by Steve Perry, read by Sean Foster. Doomsday is here. Earth totally overrun by the alien. Ain't nowhere left to go but deep space. Wilkes, Billy, and Bueller, survivors head out in search of the fragments of humanity, and a place to rest. Some hope. They shore up at a remote military outpost, prisoners of the crazed General Spears. His weapons production. Aliens. His plan. Trained aliens to recapture Earth. The perfect killing machine. Trained. Some hope. Additional crew member for this assignment, Derek W.C. Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. This is an animated film. It is from 1985. It was in 3D. And somehow I got to see it in a theater with stupid-ass 3D glasses and the whole nine yards. I think my dad took me. And it was funny because I hadn't seen the movie for years. And, of course, this going to insult a massive amount of prequel fans. But I, I remember re-watching, revisiting the movie a number of years later, long after the prequels were done, and going, ah, they should have just released this for the prequels. I know that's kind of like strange because it's, it's sort of in between, right? Because 1985, it's after Alien but before Aliens, right? There are a lot of those where I'm, I'm sure you're talking about things like, you know, Ice Pirates and to me, I, I feel bad mentioning this too because I, I don't necessarily think of it that way, but most people do, right? Battlestar Galactica, you know, as a Star Wars ripoff or, or Battle Beyond the Stars or there, there's tons of things like that. Either they were trying to capture something that they didn't, the, the zeitgeist of something that they didn't know what it was or they were callously capturing the zeitgeist of something but didn't care what their product was they just cared that they were in the zone I got a space movie too they didn't really care what the product was or if it even came close to approximating Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever it was they just wanted to be in the same swimming pool I was five years old when I saw Alien I was left with my uncle I, I can't remember I think it was like like my parents had a date night or so, you know, something like that, where it was basically like, oh, you know, we, we need somebody to watch the kid for the night type thing. Or maybe they, they went away for the weekend or something like that. And so I was staying with my uncle and, you know, it was like, of course, it's the cool uncle who lets you do whatever the hell you want. Go and get like egg McMuffins for breakfast and all this shit that your mom would never let you do. And so I think I'm sitting there and of course he was the cool uncle who had cable, right? So you're like sitting there and you're, you're flipping through the channels and everything and you see this movie and of course I love Star Wars and everything and I loved outer space and and that kind of thing so you stumble upon this movie where you're like oh cool like look there's these guys in outer space and they're they're doing a mining expedition like oh this will be cool and you know of course before you know it the alien pops out of the dude's chest and you're like holy fucking 
shit. By the time that happened, it was like, I think my uncle walked in. He's like, oh, I got to go to bed and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know, go go ahead and, you know, watch what you want. Have a good night or whatever. And and then and then after that, it's like the lights are out. The alien pops out of the guy's chest and everything. And for the rest of the night, I was just kind of like frozen on that couch waiting to see like, what the fuck's going to happen? How the fuck is, you know, all these people, you know, how the fuck is Ripley going to get out of this and all that other stuff? So that was kind of my introduction to Alien. See, the, the thing about Alien was that I guess it worked very well for the time because I'm thinking of Ridley Scott. Blade Runner is probably one of my favorite movies, period. But I, I think my initial fascination with it, what, 1982? I was probably like five years old, just like Alien or whatever. I know I saw Blade Runner in the theater and I know I saw Alien at the same age as I saw Blade Runner. And I, I think my initial fascination with that too was Harrison Ford. It was like, oh, Han Solo is going to be in another science fiction movie where he's in a flying car and he's hunting down robots, whatever my little kid had put together of that movie. That's something that influenced how I saw the films, but I think with Alien, that kind of lured me into a false sense of security. It worked like gangbusters for what they were trying to accomplish. I think for regular moviegoers, it was supposed to be the mundanity of, these are space truckers, this is going to be by-the-numbers boring, they're working a job. And then you roll into what happens where the job goes totally awry, and you, you go on and tell this 12 little Indians horror story in on a spaceship. For me, because I associated it with that Star Wars vibe, there was that false sense of security. It's funny to say, but as much death is in Wrath of Khan, or as much you know mayhem is in Star Wars, there is that sense of, oh, this is fun, this is you know, a toy that I bought. There's a sense of confidence, you know, oh, Captain Kirk's in charge, or Admiral Kirk's in charge, you know, he's going to get us out of this shit. As a five-year-old watching that first movie, I thought maybe this group of people were going to have that same mentality, and they totally didn't. The way everything turns on its head, that became something that there were no Elseworlds or multiverses or whatever when I was like five. It was like the Adam West Batman was the Filmation Batman, was the Super Friends Batman, and was the Dark Knight Returns Batman. And by the time you got to that, it was such a head-snapping moment. And that's kind of what Aliens was. That sense of outer space comfort or heroic stuff, but then it just spun it all on its head and gave you like whiplash with how much it upended that entire genre or franchise for me, I guess. I think by the time Aliens came out, I was probably like, I want to say I was like nine or ten or something like that. But it was, of course, a big tentpole summer blockbuster movie and everything. I remember seeing that with my mom and dad. It was a big deal or whatever. And intense and everything, but it was it was certainly like a feel-good movie, right? Because at the end, you know, Ripley comes up in the loader and kicks the shit out of the queen and Newt and Hicks survive and all that other kind of stuff, which is my personal connection to some of the comics and everything. But I don't know, it's weird because people talk about it. They're like, are you really a fan of the franchise if you only like two movies of like seven movies? And my argument is like, well, fuck you, man. There was only two movies and they were really good. Like, it's not my fault you made like seven shitty movies after that. Leave me alone. I did like love those two movies and, and I did have a strong connection to them. From the Amazing Heroes preview special, number 157, dated January 15th, 1989. A second four-part Alien series is on the boards for release shortly after the first series concludes. Verhanen is writing the second series with art by Rich Heaton and Tom McWeeny from Roachmill. The story will be a continuation of events that happened in the first comic series. I want to make it clear, however, that the six-issue series that Mark Nelson is drawing has a definite 
definite conclusion. We're not doing an ongoing thing that will go on forever and ever. There is a definite conclusion. However, events from that will spring off to become integral to the new series. It's safe to say, if you know the Roachmill art style, they are going to go a little more towards an action-oriented book, with some fairly lunatic situations. I don't really have the whole thing plotted out yet, Last Bear Hayden. I need to finish the first series first. If the second Alien series is also successful, and Dark Horse and 20th Century Fox want to continue, Verhaden can see himself continuing to write Aliens through several more miniseries. It's fun to be a part of a hit. I'm still surprised at the amount of freedom I have, given that it is a book about the aliens. I can pretty much take it in any direction I want to take it. From an artistic standpoint, I'm having a ball. When Dark Horse came out with Aliens comics, it's funny how people are always trying to like capture the fabled new reader, make a good introductory point for readers and this and that. I never read Aliens book one. I think I finally read it shortly before Prometheus came out because the engineer was in it. I think at that point I was getting super hyped for they're going to show us what the engineers are like. I, I think I knew the engineer was a part of that initial book one and I knew I had never read it. And when I did read it, it was in black and white. Not too many member berries or nostalgic vibe for that book one. I think there was some sense of satisfaction finally being able to read it. I think that was like one of the books I just kind of was like, okay, I'm going to have to let that go. From the June 1989 cover dated comic scene number eight, second series. And now Vera Hayden is at work on a sequel of his own. I'm actually well into the second Alien series for Dark Horse. It's very exciting. The new four issue offering will go to color. Like its predecessor, the second series will be a self-contained story, so new readers don't have to wade through a bunch of background. In the first series, Earth was pretty messed up, with a kind of mass psychosis that led people to believe the alien queen was a god, etc. This series will deal with the ramifications of an alien-ridden Earth and how our characters deal with it. Aliens Book 1 came out. I was not Richie Rich, but I was not a pauper. By this point, I had discovered the wonder of the back issue, the comic store and all that kind of stuff. It's not like Aliens comics were things you could get from a spinner rack or even a Walden books or anything like that. By the time I saw Aliens Book 1, it was one of the wall books. I mean, I, I swear it was like 30 bucks or something in a Mylar or whatever. And then on top of that, I think somehow I knew it was in black and white. And I've never made any secret of this. I mean, obviously there's certain exceptions to the rule. There are certain black and white comic books, especially like some of the Marvel magazines that I go gaga over. But I'm kind of known for saying that essentials are coloring books and, you know, making fun of that and all that kind of stuff. I think both those things worked against that book one. If I was going to spend $30 on something, it was going to be like some kind of Silver Age Fantastic Four issue with the Silver Surfer in it or something like that, or take that $30 and buy 30 comics or what, you know what I mean? Like, And, and that's kind of what ended up happening with book two, because I don't know that I bought book two off the stands, quote unquote. Maybe like issue three or four was on the stands or something like that, and I bought those at cover price. I distinctly remember getting almost all of the issues to book two. Updating the Amazing Heroes preview special from number 170, not drawn by Rich Heaton and Tom McWeeny as reported in the last preview special. This sequel to the immensely popular Alien series will feature full-color airbrushed art by Warlock 5 creator Dennis Bovez. As for the story, it picks up immediately after the first series is ending. While Newton Hicks have managed to escape the horrors of an Earth overrun by aliens, they find themselves trapped aboard a cargo ship carrying alien specimens to another world. After a desperate battle, they land on a remote military colony where a division of mad military types are trying to train the alien drones for combat. In a clear case of people unclear on the concept, they hope to use the aliens against one another in the struggle to recapture Earth. In the meantime, Newt finds herself drawn to a mysterious pirate video broadcast emanating from 
Earth. A diary of sorts, as the last human survivors battle against impossible alien odds. Newt is especially affected by the fate of a little girl who is trapped with the others. The girl reminds Newt of her experiences on Acheron and of herself. As the broadcast continues, Newt develops an empathic relationship with the little girl. She can't bear to watch her die. She'll have to go back to Earth. The new series is a bit more action-oriented than the first series, says writer Mark Verhaden. Obviously, Dennis's color artwork is just amazing. Mark Nelson's black and white artwork on the first series lent itself well to the mysterious, the creepy, and the spooky. But Dennis's artwork lends itself a little more to the balls-out action of this series. Immediately after Aliens 2 ends, look for Aliens vs. Predator. I've always kind of known it as book two. Like, it's, it's weird to me to read these fandom sites, these wikis, and I guess Nightmare Asylum was the title of the novel that Steve Perry wrote that was based on this four-issue miniseries. To me, it's unique, I think, and, and also I feel like I kind of reject that if I was going to be really hoity-toity about it. With Nightmare Asylum, what the fuck is that? The thing that majorly attracted me to it outside of the fact that it was from a popular movie franchise that I had a lot of fascination with, and of course I love, you know, space and outer space and aliens and all that kind of thing. But the fact that book two was in color, wonderfully painted art, that drew me as well. And I think there was that connection. I read it essentially when it came out. You know, some of them were back issues, but it was right, right around the time when it was released. At that point, the characters that you were continuing the adventures of were Newt and Hicks. I've also gone on record, thought it was weird later when they had to retcon everything because of the events of Alien 3. Oh yeah, now they're gluten glicks, you know, but it's like what Wilkes and Billy. I started um, looking at uh, some of the the YouTube channels for some of this stuff. And there's lots of fan-made audiobooks of some of the novels and stuff like that. Hearing in your ear holes, Wilkes and Billy. Dark Horse was obviously very consciously trying to do something different with their adaptations. And obviously that was a good call because Dark Horse took what was very much a licensing ghetto that was treated like garbage for the most part. You'd have properties like Conan and Star Wars that literally saved Marvel from going into bankruptcy in the 70s. And yet this is still treated as riffraff by Marvel more often than not in their publishing. They often didn't put their best talents on there. They often deprioritized these licensed goods, even when they were some of their best sellers, because they figured, let the licensor do the heavy lifting. Where Dark Horse, of course, since they didn't have a Spider-Man or a Superman or what have you, they were buying legendary properties or the commercial properties, and it made the most sense to try to get the most out of that licensing, because they had hadn't generated any IP that they could capitalize on. And frankly, they never did after all these years. Dark Horse to this day is still best known for being great at doing licensed comics and not for generating new concepts. And it definitely shifted the paradigm because there are other publishers that are also defined the way that Dark Horse became defined by just doing right by licensed product. But I think it was very important for Dark Horse to show that their work was important to the greater canon of these franchises. It worked especially well with Star Wars because they were the only game in town aside from novels. Everything that was being generated for Star Wars for a good 15 years there was being done in print. There was nothing else. There wasn't that much in the way of cartoons. There wasn't anything in live action. The comic books did such a great job of capturing the flair of Star Wars. It to some degree revitalized the property after it had been moribund for a number of years. And obviously the Aliens comics proved that you didn't need the movies to keep a fandom fresh and excited. Having gone 
gone to great lengths to make sure their Aliens comics mattered. Then you have Alien 3 come out to literally contradict everything that Dark Horse had done up to that point. And you'll note that after Alien 3, there's a clear divorce between the comics and the movies where Dark Horse made sure that they were doing stuff that was only within their sphere of influence and that couldn't be marred by the movies. Plus, you had giant timeline jumps as well. So that gave them a lot more leeway to do whatever they wanted to do. My understanding is they had done these comic books that were very popular and they served as the basis for a series of novelizations and then I think eventually they started doing more original novels within the Alien universe but because Dark Horse has already had success with the comics and there was still I think a prejudice against comics and an assumption that there was an audience that would never actually read a comic book but they could take advantage of the material that was being generated by the comics to serve as a guideline for these novelizations. The novels when they were going into production I think were either around the same time as or shortly after Alien 3 so they were already aware that they were going to have to make changes because the material was no longer in the movie canon. And I think the tale started to wag the doll in this respect because once the novels were being produced under the new names of the characters, Dark Horse decided that they wanted to keep their comic books as close to the novel canon as possible. And so they went back and changed the names in the trade yeah. paperbacks. And I think specifically there was a 1996 collection of Aliens Book 2 where they just applied the name of the novel, Nightmare Asylum, and that's where that came from. From, but a lot of it felt extremely arbitrary when the comic people have already embraced your comics to have some outside medium change the thing that people like I think you're automatically going to get a pushback and of course over the years Dark Horse has gotten away from those alterations and have gone back to the original versions of the stories I understand their motivation but again I think that it was clearly misguided because in reading Aliens book 2 I get why you would want to try to treat these different characters because I do think that there were liberties taken in the writing of those characters that I'm more comfortable with those being new characters but at the same time you'll have a moment like there's a big splash page in one of the early issues where Billy screams Wilkes and that same panel with a in all caps a Hicks just has way more impact for me as a person who's already a fan of that property Wilkes is never going to mean as much to me as Hicks is going to mean. you know when you have his name in giant font it just seems weird to me because it's never going to have that same impact if it's not Hicks he doesn't matter as much just as simple as that. I get the intent and to some degree I even agree with it because I want those stories to matter too. I think that it's beneficial to expand the canon but I also completely get why you wouldn't want to do that because then the stories are having to carry more of a load than they did when they first came out and they're going to carry less emotional weight as a result of that. Yeah, it's weird because I think that had the opposite effect on me where I have a huge grudge against Alien 3 and I think I blame Alien 3 for this more than I blame Dark Horse for trying to pick up the pieces or scramble around the outcome of that. I find all that stuff amusing now in retrospect trying to change names and I sort of get it. You have this contingent of comic fandom where everybody wants their stories to quote unquote matter. If Hicks and Newt are considered dead on arrival in the beginning of Alien 3, well then th th this entire story purportedly does not quote unquote mean anything. But for me, I guess it's just my unique position with it. This story came first. I prioritize this above Alien 3, and I don't even really like Alien 3 all that much. There's truth to what I was saying. I mean, I really do love Alien, and I love Aliens, but I guess the hard question is, do I love the Aliens franchise? And if you add up all these movies, Covenant and Prometheus and the Versus movies and Resurrection and all this other stuff that came afterwards, oh, if you're going to twist my arm, I'm going to tell you, I like Alien, and I like Aliens. That's the mo 
most I can give you. I have member berries about the AVP comics. The movie was not super faithful to it. I might give that movie a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but the sequel's horrible. I, I don't really care for it all that much. So it's like, do I like the franchise? I want to say yes. My big love, those first two movies, and like these type of comics and miniseries where I was balls deep into it. I was like Mulder in X-Files. I believed in Aliens and Alien, but this version of Aliens. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, Aliens number six, the original series, final issue was released on April the 1st, 1989, and supposedly the second volume, the 89, book two, number one, was released on June 30th, 1989, almost three months later. However, in this instance, for change, I would suspect that the cover dates are more accurate than the supposed release dates. The dates listed at Mike's appear to be monthly, but if you read the letters columns, it's pretty clear that this book was not coming out on a consistent schedule. Schedule. In October 1996, the series was finally collected and released by itself as a low-cost trade paperback, but in a content-edited form under the new title Aliens Volume 2 Nightmare Asylum. This release was part of Dark Horse's remastered Aliens Library Edition series, reprints that attempted to bring the content of all of Dark Horse's previously released Aliens comics in line with the updated continuity presented by Alien 3. Thus, the new character names created for the 1992 novelization of the first Dark Horse series, Aliens Earth Hive by Steve Perry, was edited into the story story in place of the original characters that had since died in the third film. In issue number one, Higgs slash Wilkes, Newt slash Billy, and Butler slash Bueller are trapped for 15 days aboard the spaceship The American, named after Mark Ver Hayden's creator-owned comic book. The ship is running on remote control, so as stowaways, they have few options. They spend most of their time watching what they refer to as shadow transmissions being broadcast from Earth, picked up intermittently. One particularly notable image was a shot of a classroom full of dead children's and instructor. On the blackboard is written, Darwin was right. Billy's dreams are plagued by nightmares. You know the dream sequence where Newt or Billy or whatever she has a dream about the aliens. This sense that there are still aliens on board the ship that they've stowed away on. And she comes and gets Hicks. She says the aliens are still on board. The aliens cause damage which ignites a fire. Wilkes only has a pulse rifle with I believe five shots to take down three aliens. In a scene similar to Ripley's defeat of the alien queen in the movie Aliens, Hicks sucks some of the aliens out of an airlock and the explosive decompression gives him the bends taking him out of the action forcing Billy to take a spacewalk to address the aliens that were still clinging to the hull of the ship one of the aliens is destroyed by the ignition of rear thrusters by the synthesoid Butler slash Bueller again reminiscent of the ending to the first alien movie Newt had this relationship with a synthetic person and that the synthetic person cares about her and everything and, and then they're kind of in this weird estranged bit because she thought Bueller was human in the end, the American lands on a space base where our crew are greeted by an irate general. And then she goes out and pulls a Ripley herself and takes out the aliens. And that's why the general's pissed when they show up. Basically, they've killed all his quote-unquote specimens. This is my alien sequel. I love the art. I like that it follows Newton Hicks. I guess I imprinted on this at a really early age. I think that's why I jumped at the chance to talk about these with you because, to me, this is where the Alien franchise goes and I reject the retcon of Aliens 3. Like, to me, I don't care that it's a film and film, especially back then, that film is considered higher up on the hierarchy chain than a comic book. At that point, my age, I think probably then I was, you know, 11, 12 or something like that, and those books were gospel. That's where the story went and the fact that somebody wrote a script that completely discarded those, that was the point where I was young enough to be, like, super offended by it. What are you doing? They set up all this 
story and you just completely ignored it. It was interesting for me to learn that there was this novelization that was based on the comic. There's a lot of things that are different in those books. Let me just give you one thing. Okay, Newt is alone out of her spacesuit, almost echoing Ripley being in her underwear, like sitting there relaxing or whatever. And then Hicks walks in on her asleep. She's frightened and everything. And there's this weird sequence, and this is in the comic, and they have this dream. It's all her pent-up fears and frustrations and everything. He kind of mocks her and calls her Rebecca, tells her how much she's afraid of everything and all this other stuff. As he gets closer and closer, there's a chest burster supposedly inside of him. But then because it's a dream, it's not just a chest burster. It's like a full-grown alien pops out of his chest. And that's when she screams Hicks, which I think is the panel that you were referring to. And that's when she wakes up and realizes she's having a dream and there's the aliens there and everything. In the novel, or at least the audiobook version of the novel I've been listening to, there's a fan channel on YouTube where they've gotten to like, I think 19 chapters of 30 or something like that. They talk about it like the thought that she has, Billy has, about Wilkes is, is he going to rape me? I know this is like a weird dream sequence even in the comic book, but I, I don't think that ever occurred to me. I just thought, why is he getting more menacing? And then he's more menacing because there's an alien inside of him. And it's her subconscious trying to tell her, hey, there's still aliens on the ship. There's still something that means you harm. But I don't know, just the way they describe it, like a large protruding thing starts poking her body and you're like, oh, it's the alien. But then it's like, it's weird when it's said in the context of rape too, because you're like, wait, I mean, that entire notion to me is kind of icky, right? Because like Hicks is her father figure. Some, some of that stuff made it even more unsettling. Maybe what you were talking about, applying those not only retroactive naming conventions, there was some retroactive interpretation of Verheiden's original comic story, and they put a lot of layers to things that I think, to me, just didn't, I don't know, may, maybe I'm blind or something, but to me, like, a lot of that stuff didn't exist. Aliens number two has a cover date of December 1989, which would place it at four months between issues. Much of issue number two is narrated by Lieutenant Eugene Powell, USCMC, although in the novelization and in some passages of the revised version of the miniseries and trade paperback, he's referred to as Major Eugene Powell. We learn that the irate base commander is General T. Spears. Newton Hicks are initially seen as breeding stock for alien xenomorphs that the general is trying to train into an army to go up against the aliens that infested Earth. He's a madman who's inspired mutineers, among them Renus, uh, one with a mustache, Goins Peterson, which is a male without a mustache, and North slash Magruder, who is a lady. These are not first and last names. These are the names of the comic book versions versus the names used in the novelization. And then they're thrust into another situation where they're spinning the alien thing on its head. It's not only that the aliens are out to get them, but it's that you've got this guy, General Spears. He was the Negan of his day. General Spears in charge of this facility. And you have to understand that Earth is overrun with aliens at this point in this comic franchise. They're getting communiques from Earth and it seems like it's all doom and gloom and all this other stuff. General Spears, that's why I compare him to somebody like Negan or the governor. He's one of those type of guys where he's got his own little separate facility where it's isolated from the outbreak of aliens on Earth, but he's also working to create some kind of retaliatory force. And in his mind, he thinks the best thing to do is to tame the aliens and have aliens fight aliens, fight fire with fire. He's going to 
to somehow convert these aliens into his own personal army, and then he's going to lead them, and they're going to take back the planet, and then he's going to be ruler of the fucking world and king shit or whatever. Of course, the guy's a little mental. In the comics, they go to great lengths to show you the way he trained. They pick up on the aspect of the queen, somehow telepathically communicates with the drones, and they're trying to play off of that. They bring in a drone. The drone kills some random human being. Then they incinerate the drone. The queen screams, and she's all mad. They play with it to where they get to to the point where if he lights a match, the queen will tell the drone, don't kill this guy, because then you're going to get incinerated. Training like they're animals, like attack dogs or something like that. But in the novels, that never happened or didn't work. And the only time the queen would take commands or give commands on his behalf is when they threaten the eggs, not the drones. In the novel, they go to great lengths to say she didn't give a shit about the drones, but she gave a shit about the eggs. At one point, Powell references Orona, who I believe was one of the main scientists mentioned repeatedly in the first volume. Because of his long-standing history of fighting aliens and surviving, General Spears respects the strength of Hicks and releases him onto the base rather than, you know, impregnating him. Powell eventually catches up with Hicks and notes of General Spears. He's insane, you know, and lists him as part of a mutiny. The three mutineers that are apparently not associated with Powell made their way to a terraforming colony, which unfortunately had been converted to a hive by the general. And of the three, only one manages to make it back out alive, but is thrown back in by the general, who is, of course, caught on to the mutineers. Aliens number three has a cover date of March 1990, placing it at a three-month wait between issues. We see the general conditioning the queen using her drones. Newt expresses her ambivalence toward Butler, cognizant of both her affection for him and her resentment of him. I think the novelization goes further into she psychoanalyzes herself. Am I and Butler being estranged because I now know that he's synthetic? She has these like back and forths. You know, it's 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 like a stream of consciousness. I could have a relationship with a synthetic, and then she thinks to herself, well, maybe maybe it is me. Maybe I can't have a relationship with the synthetic. Maybe I am prejudiced against synthetic life forms and all this other stuff. And she's having all this back and forth in her head. In her free time, Newt continues to watch the shadow broadcast from Earth, fixating on a little girl named Amy, who is very reminiscent of a young Newt. As she travels with her father and a gentleman known only as Ray, they, or at least one of them, is eventually captured by soldiers who are in the telepathic thrall of a queen. In a confusing bit of business, the dad eventually asks for Amy to be kept safe by his partner Ray, who'd been shooting the camera. And yet later on, it appears that Ray is the one who gets up captured by the soldiers and the dad is still alive. One of the most frustrating changes in the relettering is you have the Newt proxy that Newt is watching being broadcast from Earth. Her name's oh, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. In the original version, she's with her father. You know, when she's separated from her father, she's like, daddy, 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 which completely resonates and, you know, tugs on the heart a little bit because you understand that relationship immediately. And for some reason, they decided in the new version to make it Uncle Bert. And at one point, she's literally going, Uncle Bert, Uncle Bert, Uncle Bert. It's like, what are you thinking? Why would you even think to do that? Uncle Bert. Yeah. And, and uh, it has to be Bert as well. It's like, who the hell? Uh, I'm pretty sure there's nobody named Bert in the 22nd century or whatever the hell, you know? Bert's gone. The, there's no Berts the, anymore. I mean, if there was a Bert, the alien would have eaten him. Right. Just, just by virtue of him being a Bert. It sounds like a special effect. It sounds like the sound your head would make as it's popping from the jackhammer draw. Like, uh, 
Spears eventually catches on to the betrayal of Powell and by extension Hicks. And when some aliens are released into the compound, he uses his flames to cow the aliens and then intends to prep the traitors for execution. There's no indication of this in the comic book. And I suppose everybody can interpret their own things. And this, this is why I was surprised it was written. The novel version was written in 1993 because I, I got to be honest, this is not anything I thought of at all. I think General Spears was a good antagonist. I wanted Hicks to blow his brains out and all this other stuff, but I never thought he was as depraved, sick in the head as the novels make him out to be because there's this sequence in the comic and it's literally in the comic. So it's not like this didn't happen in the comic, but there's this sequence where he's obviously breeding these aliens and they've got the eggs and all this other stuff. He's got his quote unquote specimens that he's getting ready to train and everything like that. And there's this moment where while Hicks is off trying to start this rebellion, they're in this facility, this little farming enclave colony. The horror of it is the general had conscripted that farming facility into a breeding ground for aliens. So he sacrificed all these people to become alien fodder and everything. And he's like in awe of the eggs there and all this other stuff. He's almost fondling or or cradling the egg. And one of his troops is like, sir, get away from the eggs. They're dangerous. And and, and General Spears, just just before I get into it, he's kind of like, if they cast, what is it? R. Lee Ermey, right? Ronald Lee Ermey. It's like General Spears. Like, that would probably be pretty fucking spot on. What the fuck's going on, son? And he's basically like, don't be afraid, son. They don't want to hurt us. Can't you feel it? I know what it's like to be born into pain. I was one of the first products of the military's birthing program. He admires the alien, kind of like Ash does in the first movie. And he talks about perfection. And in his own way, Spheres feels the same way. Now, the reason why I went into that whole diatribe about the comic book version is in the novel version, they say he's got a fucking hard on when he's next to the eggs. And they go into this whole weird fucking backstory about how when he was a young man, he was getting trained and his drill sergeant was some tough as nails, ball busting big Barda type or some shit. And they talk about how he was in the shower and he always had a fucking hard on every time he was in the shower with her. And eventually one day she walks up and is like, hey, you want to break that shit in? And they she quote unquote trains him on how to fuck and all this. I don't know. It was just really weird. None of that's in the comic book. Why? When I heard some of those things and some of those divergences, I was kind of like, did somebody write this in 2020? It felt like it was written in a modern sensibility. When they reworked book two into Nightmare Asylum, they re-lettered the entire book, which again, I don't approve of. It'd be one thing if you were just going in there and changing out the names, but when you completely re-letter it, everything, all these balloons were placed in certain places for a reason. And of course, when the book was originally done, it was hand-lettered. And I'm not sure if maybe this was some early digital lettering. I sincerely hope so. Uh. I hope they didn't actually go in there and re-hand-letter it all throughout. But what's funny is while they're trying to change the names to what was featured in the novelization, they're not consistent. And so, for instance, in uh, some panels, you have Lieutenant Eugene Powell. In other panels, you have Major Eugene Powell. There's a reference to Dr. Fowler in the original miniseries that becomes Dr. Powell, who we never even see in the, the comic book miniseries. And of course, by having a Dr. Powell, you're immediately confusing Dr. Powell with Lieutenant Powell, a.k.a. Major Powell, who's an mm. important figure in the story. In trying to fix things, they're making things more and more confusing. But especially when you get down to the AWOL soldiers, mm. in some one version, one of them's Goins, the other is Peterson, and one version, it's North, and another, it's Magruder. These guys have two or three scenes in the story before they're killed off, never to be seen again. Why do you need to go so 
deep into it to make sure to change the names of characters that nobody cares about. They have no fan wonder, following. Listening to those audiobooks over the last couple of days, like the chapters I did listen to, I felt like those sections were somehow expanded upon. Jesus Christ, what chapter are we on? Like, haven't hasn't he fed them to the fucking aliens yet? And it feels like their shit went on longer. So who knows? Maybe they gave them like new names and made them last a little longer. I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out why they would have done something kooky like that. You also have Corporal Hicks versus Sergeant Wilkes, and it really throws me off because it's easy enough to, to translate one to the other since the names are so similar, but when you're changing his ranks, that just pisses me off for some reason, <laughs> you know? But it also bugs me because there's a little snippet of dialogue they take out. They reference not only his time on the Benedict, which was the ship that he was stationed on in the first miniseries, but they also reference the Sulaco, and they take that out entirely in the revised edition. I think that not referencing the first appearance of Hicks in the movie, it diminishes, like, why is the general sparing this guy if we don't have him being one of the only survivors of one of the first contacts with the aliens? It just, it, yeah, his that, motivation that, gets lost as a result that, of that. that. That does feel strange. That feels like old school pre-crisis Jason Todd. Here's another set of people that also had a first contact with aliens and are also totally invaluable to my crusade. What a coincidence. It's also funny in the revised edition, there's a single new page, a splash page of the general looking at one of the drones in the Luke Skywalker Empire Strikes Back revitalization back, to... Back, back to tank for the aliens. Right. Where he's reciting once again perfection. And my understanding is it was created just because in the trade paperback the sequencing of the pages wasn't working correctly so they drafted this one more image. And I do like that he was able to channel his style since I don't think he really employs the style used in book two anywhere else. So it was nice that he was able to channel that again. Mm, it's a cool image. For something I, I as as critical as we've been to reworking or making additions or recoloring or relettering or whatever, the fact that you say he's able to rechannel it, this was done so far removed from the original. It's really good. Most times you'd expect it to just look way off when it's so, you know, because people's styles change, they do different things, and sometimes you even have people, like you talk about, there's, there's a level of arrogance. They don't want to even recapture their old style because they're so, I don't know, maybe they're embarrassed by it or they feel like they're so far beyond what they were doing back then or whatever. It's not going to take anybody out of the story when they see that panel, right? It's going to look like it belongs there. When he does the original miniseries in 89, he has the very ornate DB signature. And then when he comes back in 96 to do that one page, he signs it and it's just his first name, Den. And in modern times, he has this stylized DB that looks like a little tiny penis and testicles. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's just a weird evolution to take note of there. Art for the series was produced by Canadian Dennis Beauvais. He got his start on the Black and White Boom book Warlock 5, which was produced by Aircell. Aircell began its life as a foam insulation company out of Ottawa, Canada. They lost a the government contract, so one of their employees, Barry Blair, convinced the owner to try putting out comic books. Some notable books produced by Aircell include Samurai, Dragon Ring, and Elf Lord, as well as The Adventurers, Cat and Mouse, The Walk 
Walking Dead slash Deadwalkers, no relation to the Robert Kirkman series. Probably most famously, the first adventures of the Men in Black, who were adapted into several blockbuster motion pictures, were produced by Aircell. Aircell was eventually sold to Malibu Comics and became redefined as a purveyor of porn. Essentially, Aircell became the Eros to Malibu's Fantagraphics, and Barry Blair produced most of that material. Aircell did debut several notable artists, probably most famously Dale Keown. Mitch Bird was doing a book for them. In the case of Den Boe, he'd gotten his start doing lowrider artwork, drawings of cars and such, doing a lot of stuff in his high school. He eventually tried out for Dragon Magazine and had several pieces published for their covers. This led to work for TSR on projects like Dungeons and Dragons. He was also commissioned to paint a retirement piece for Canadian premier Pierre Trudeau. While mostly forgotten today, there was a time where Warlocks 5 was the top-selling book for Aerosol. It's an interesting premise. Essentially, you have a T-800 Terminator, the Linnea Quigley punk character from Return of the Living Dead, perhaps mixed with the punk girl from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors, who is able to control an army of zombies, an albino sorceress, an armored knight regent, and what appeared to be a Nosferatu-like Dracula human being, but was in fact a dragon in human form. Each of these five were the guardians and avatars of their own individual dimensions, and Earth was the point at which all those dimensions met. These portals between dimensions were referred to as the grid, and each of these five believed that they were destined to be the ruler of all creation, and that it was vital to their dominion and the continued existence of their dimensions for them to conquer all other dimensions. And so, typically, Earth was a battleground not dissimilar from Highlander. The original run by the initial creators was about 13 issues. The publication quality was rather poor. The creators felt that they could do better elsewhere, but Barry Blair did not want to let them go and fought them over copyrights, tried to make claims about uh, being a creator, continued to produce the series without them for about another dozen issues or so. After that series ended, Blair produced uh, several more miniseries. He also produced another book called Warlocks, which was unrelated to Warlock 5, adding to market confusion. While it's pretty clear that legally Blair didn't have a leg to stand on, his chicanery did tie up the rights long enough to where the property cooled and the creators, specifically the painted artists, moved on to work for specifically Dark Horse. And in fact, on his blog, he tells a story about how he created a polyfoam face hugger just for reference for the work that he was doing and then tried to get it through customs. It was a funny story. Wasn't exactly prolific. Aside from a serialized alien story in one of the Dark Horse solicitation magazines, he produced a full-color one-shot adaptation of the original Frankenstein motion picture from Universal from the 1930s, as well as various covers for Aliens, Predator, Ghost, various Dark Horse books. Sometime in the late 90s, his interest started to move more toward computer-generated images, something of a pioneer in that respect, and some of those ghost covers were actually CGI rather than painted. In the early 2000s, he moved to San Diego and worked on video games. None of that really came to fruition. He did meet his wife in San Diego. They've been married ever since then. Over the course of the 2000s, Beauvais became a conspiracy theorist and truther. In fact, he produced a series of conspiracy cards, which he believed attracted the attention of federal authorities and ICE, ultimately leading to his deportation. While initially returning to his native Canada, he eventually moved to Mexico, where he and his wife now run a B&B, and he continues to work on painted art commissions. Despite being a Canadian, he appears to be a big fan of Donald Trump and has done several paintings of the former president. I've definitely never read Warlock 5. It's not Kai 
hyper detailed or anything, but I feel like it conveyed what you needed it to convey. I think the majority of focus on making it look comparable to a cinematic image, I mean, I feel like a lot of these guys struggle with it, but they all do a good job of focusing on how the drones and the queens and all that stuff look. Do you think the aliens themselves are out of character? I have podcasts about Gundam and mobile suits, but I'm not like a car guy. I'm not like a mobile suit guy. I, I could talk to death about Star Trek, but I care about the characters and stuff. I'm sure there's people out there that are really into all the xenomorphs and the different variations of them. The way that Dennis Vi does an alien doesn't look like the right xenomorph because it's xenomorph XYZ and then he's doing xenomorph ABC or what you know whatever kind of stuff. I just look at some of these covers and think it captures some kind of cinematic flair. The angles and the way the lighting is and everything. I thought, you know, certain things successfully captured at least what we had seen up to that point. Ridley Scott, James Cameron look about them. And then as far as the human beings go, they weren't super hyper-specific. The thing that identified Hicks was that he had problems with his face. It's not like he looked like Michael Bean or whatever, right? And, and then the thing that identified Newt was that she kind of was a long-haired blonde girl. I mean, for the most part, the fact that what helps you identify the Ripley-isms of her is, you know, when she gets in the spacesuit, when she's wearing the white t-shirt and panties or whatever it is, you know, like those kind of aspects that evoke that Ridley Scott alien vibe or whatever. I think he was successful at conveying the Cameron drones, the Cameron queen, the vibe that that had, the threat of flamethrowers and fire. And I wouldn't say that General Spheres had a likeness of Arlie Ermey, but I still got the vibe of the type of guy he was. The hat that he wore would shadow most of the top portion of his face. Like, you get the idea that, you know, Bueller's literally half a man, while the general is literally shady. He's got that fucking shade over his face the entire time. You, you know, you could tell that there's something not quite right, that there's something off with this guy, even visually. I think all that stuff worked for me. It's not a Mignola thing, but there's certain aspects of the blacks that he uses, but contrasted with some of the bright painted colors that accentuate the figures and the motion and all that kind of stuff that I think just makes it visually appealing to me. The one thing that I think both Mark Nelson and Dennis Bouvet have in common is that they're both good at drawing the aliens themselves. Mm. And I think that that's essential and I think that that's something that if, if you obviously if you can't do the aliens right then you probably shouldn't be doing the project. And the fact is both of these guys had t-shirts with their artwork on it. The difference being that when I was at one of my comic shops, I think it was in 92, I ordered a t-shirt, which I proceeded to wear for the next several years, probably on a weekly basis. And the t-shirt I had <laughs> had Mark Nelson art artwork on it. And so even though I hadn't read that miniseries, because he only unfortunately did the one miniseries, and I, I didn't really read any of the Dark Horse Presents stuff or anything, because both of them did material beyond the core miniseries, but it was always this weird side stuff, mm. like Dark Horse Presents or Dark Horse Insider. They really just had a miniseries apiece and I think that they both have followings but I think one of the issues that Mark Nelson has is that uh, I go back to the old uh, fan magazines and how Wizard was definitely the winner in the fan magazine sweepstakes they buried amazing heroes there were a bunch of knockoffs of Wizard that never were remotely as popular as Wizard was I, I love the knockoffs I yeah love, uh, I, I, I dug it well yeah heroes, big comics heroes illustrated gonna... and all yeah. that stuff so if you look at Wizard Wizard had an art column and their artist was Bart Sears. 
Sears. And, you know, I've already mentioned I was a fan of Bart Sears. And he definitely had that zeitgeist where he had a style that was very flashy and very now. He literally did covers for Wizard Magazine that helped to make it the top magazine for the Chromium Age. But I'm not sure that you necessarily want Bart Sears to be the person who educates you on how to draw since there are some fundamentals of storytelling that he has always lacked. Hero Illustrated had Mark Nelson as their illustration instructor and he literally is a university instructor in art. I think he's a professor in fact. And of course he is a much better storyteller and a much better artist on a technical level but in the 1990s he wasn't exciting as exciting as a Bart Sears because he didn't have that flashy style. And so I think that when you look at the first Aliens miniseries there are fans of it because I do think that it's bravura artwork. It's extremely intricate beautiful artwork but also it's weird and it's off model and you've got things like the elephantine engineers that are not part of the continuity and don't feel like they're of a piece with the Giger version of that universe and and the Moebius influence on that universe and so I think that there are people who don't appreciate that his aesthetic isn't necessarily the aliens aesthetic whereas I think that Dennis Bouvet was very smart about taking lighting cues and design cues specifically from aliens Mm -hmm. particularly I get a woody every time I see a digital readout anywhere in the comic book because (laughs) you immediately are taken back to aliens it doesn't matter what it is when you see that digital readout on the guns or or on the tripwire that you see on one of the covers it's like oh yes 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 when you see anything that's yellow and and looks like a power loader even when it isn't a loader but it still has that design sense you automatically get excited because it looks like it's part of the aliens universe it's part of that aesthetic so I think that he does a really good job of playing to that while at the same time I think that Mark Nelson draws a very distinct face that clearly isn't Michael Bean. whereas because the characters are so indistinct in the Dennis Bouvet miniseries that you can project Michael Bean onto those figures because it's kind of a splash of colors it's like your mm-hmm. mind fills in the details that the artist hasn't put in there because you know what Michael Bean and Hicks is supposed to look like and so it's almost comforting to not have a lot of detail because you're not confronted with it not being the correct likeness dude I got your back about getting a chubby when you see the counter readout. I think my favorite one is when they're doing the revolt and Hicks just blows away the communications panel and everything and the the counter goes from 35 to 26 and then down to like what is it 18 that's exactly what you're talking about where it's like this kind of not not quite like again Mignola but it's it's playing with the ideas of blacks right like in in some panels it's just it's just a shadow or or a black image of this pulse rifle but then what makes it stand out is you know a few highlights from the the muzzle of the gun reflecting on say like the bandolier but then you've got this red counter right that just looks like super sweet it's subtle enough it's not like he had to put a whole crap ton of George Perez detail into this gun that they're making a nerf gun of by the way but and, and it gets back to the the whole alien 3 thing alien 3 is disturbing for a lot of people because it doesn't give you the thing you want and you don't have to like if somebody draws the most intricate pistol in Captain Kirk's hand and it looks fantastic in terms of number amount of detail but if that doesn't look like a phaser it's wrong and it completely yeah. takes you out of the story because Captain Kirk is supposed to have a certain kind of phaser or you're not doing it right whereas there's a sort of fetishization of elements of the design uh, used in the Alien and Aliens and if you can plug into that shared fetish of the fandom of things like that digital readout and if it looks just as 
long as you know that the impression of the rifle you're expecting is there, you don't need that level of detail. You're getting that tweak. It, it's firing that uh, uh, neuron where it's like, mm -hmm. this is aliens because it's got the readout, man. It's got the readout yep. and she's wearing yep. the boots and that's the power loader. It puts you into that world again. It doesn't take a lot, but as long as you give that impression, we'll fill in the details for you because that's what we want and that's what's giving us our high because we're getting taken back to that place when we're sitting in the movie theater in 86 and our hearts are racing because the music is playing and the fucking troop transport is smashing through walls on its way to go save our Marines. You know, we're back in that moment again because of those fetishized elements. I mean, I, I'd argue that that applies to like a lot of things in this, you know, the, the flamethrowers and, you know, I, I'm going to keep saying it, but, you know, even, even Newt's panties, right? Like all that stuff is picking, you know, the spacesuits and the, the, the way that, that Bueller is illustrated to evoke the synthetic human, those aspects, as long as you, you get the general gist of what they're going for. Is it just me or does it look like Powell was modeled after Anthony Edwards? Huh. I don't know that I would have thought of that, but I mean, since you mention it, just like when I was mentioning Arlie Ermy, that doesn't seem like out of the realm of possibility. Like if that's who you want to fill in the blanks with. Aliens number four has a cover date of May 1990. It's the only issue that appears to have shipped on its intended bi-monthly schedule. There's an interesting sequence where Butler continues to pine for Billy and he crawls throughout the station as it's been infested, being ignored by the aliens since he poses no threat to them. I don't recall there ever giving a reason why Butler slash Bueller was wandering around the base on his hands and I don't recall him doing anything to actually help with the situation Billy and Wilkes have found themselves in. Literally because the figures were so ill-defined, I can't tell characters apart. So like there's an instance where I think Hicks is fighting one of the general soldiers, but I'm not sure who's who or even what's going on. So that's a frustrating aspect for me as well. You know the moment where Powell gets blown away because he tries to go for the guy's gun and everything, and then they're like, well, the hell with Spears' order. There, there is a weird moment where because of the lighting change, Hicks is a guy in a shirt and pants, and the army guys are guys in shirt and pants. But once you change the lighting from midnight blue to this emergency red light. Wait a minute. Is Hicks about to be eaten by an alien? Oh, no, no. That's one of the soldiers. Spears has no great respect for his men and notes a crew would only complicate matters. So when he takes off from the base in his ship MacArthur, he abandons all of his soldiers and in fact immolates quite a few of them with the blasters as the thrust ignites to send the ship into orbit. Billy and Wilkes can manage to stow away on the MacArthur, essentially find themselves in the exact same position they were in at the beginning of the miniseries, except that they've left peaceful, abandoned butler to the aliens. After, I presume, another 15 days, they are on the outskirts of Earth, and they find themselves passing the Gateway Earth station. They manage to make their way to an escape pod and exit to the station. Meanwhile, General Spears lands on Earth, tries to command his aliens to fight others of their kind. There is another mutiny, this time by the Xenomorphs. Spears cuts one of the drones' heads off with a saber. And of course, nothing is more satisfying than seeing General Spears get his fucking head eaten by the fucking queen, you know, with their little jackhammer jaws to the face. Aboard Gateway Earth Station, Billy checks in on the little girl and sees that there are now these giant egg-shaped nests in major cities. And in a final half-splash, we're reintroduced to the character of Ripley. They couldn't use Sigourney Weaver in these comics. For the most part, when they initially started it, the whole idea was Sigourney wants her likeness money. And then eventually what they settled on was Sam Keith basically was like, well, as long as I don't 
make it look like Sigourney, then we're cool, right? And that seemed to be what they ended up settling on. So, and, and I'm not trying to jump the gun with that, but like, that makes sense to me why, like, who else were you going to focus on if somebody told you, if all you knew was Alien and Aliens, everyone in Alien but Sigourney Weaver and Jonesy the Cat is dead. If you go to Aliens, everybody but Sigourney Weaver, Newton Hicks are fucking toast. I don't know, unless you're going to make a comic book about fucking Bishop and, and Jonesy the Cat. To me, it's not that much of a reach or surprise that they decided these are the characters we're going to follow because I don't think uh, Michael Bean was blowing smoke up anybody's ass. People really did come to care about Ripley, Hicks, and Newt as some kind of surrogate family unit. Through the ashes of all this horrific bullshit they all had to endure, I much prefer reading this book two comic just because at least it follows those characters. I come at it again from the opposite perspective. I didn't read the first miniseries until I bought a copy of the 30th anniversary edition from the artist who had saved it for me and signed it and everything. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'll take this home and I'll finally read it. And so I, I read it that time and then I wrote it the second time for the podcast. I did not read Nightmare Asylum book two until this weekend. So I'm reading them in fairly quick succession, you know, a month or so apart from one another. And they, they read pretty nicely together, right? It's not yeah. it's not like a dreary read or anything. There's a definite thread through the two miniseries. I think that there was a lot of psychosexual elements to both miniseries mm-hmm. that were very intentional. I think that there was a weird dynamic between the Hicks and Newt characters, and I do think that was intentional, and I do think that it was in the original work. It's one of the things that leaves me with that ambivalence about whether or not they should be Billy and Wilkes mm-hmm. or not, because as a person who was a huge fan of Aliens, who went into Alien 3 with certain expectations because of the nuclear family dynamic set up by Cameron in his movie, the expectation is you have a father, a mother, and a daughter. They're all orphaned, but they've made a family amongst each other. I want to see Hicks in a father role and Newt in a daughter role. But because they've removed Ripley from this equation, because we have this history between these characters that is yet to be revealed in the miniseries, and I, and since I've never read Earth War, this will be my first time. I don't know what gets filled in, how much of the backstory gets filled in of their interrelationships. But with a years-long age jump, having new, be a nubile woman as opposed to a child, and having there be some sort of an estrangement where Hicks apparently been drinking and drugging for a number of years and has a lot of unresolved issues with regard to his experiences on Acheron. And of course, Newt has a lot of issues as well. And clearly that family dynamic wasn't sustained mm. based on what we see in the, the initial Aliens miniseries. I'm going into the Alien 3 with baggage when I see that theatrically. And I have a very negative response to the movie the first time I see it because I have expectations that are not met. And I have a somewhat similar reaction going into these two miniseries because I want the dynamic that was established by Cameron to stay in place. But I also recognize that life doesn't always work out the way you think it's going to. Again, as you talked about when you saw Alien the first time, if you're going into that movie expecting Star Wars, you got another thing coming. Alien isn't about happy endings necessarily. And so I don't necessarily get what I want from Aliens from either Alien 3 or the Aliens miniseries. I get what the creators have decided that they need for the stories they're telling. And because I'm not entirely comfortable with the dynamic between those two characters in the original text, and I can clearly see where a novelist would extrapolate what was already established by Verhaden in the miniseries, I absolutely got those sexual connotations. Okay. I think that there was a possessiveness 
in Hicks toward Newt with regard to her relationship with Butler slash Bueller in the first miniseries. And then Newt is clearly still emotionally attached to Bueller going into the second miniseries. And it's really Bueller who's pushing her away because he's trying to deal with his psychic trauma from realizing that he is an artificial human, that he is not a real flesh and blood person, except he certainly in his mind feels that way. And he still clearly has emotions. And part of the point of the miniseries is to show that regardless of whether or not he is manufactured or has a divine soul or what have you, he definitely has connections with Newt slash Billy that guide his actions and his reactions. But he is literally half a man. They have sexual intercourse in one occasion before he's ripped in half and is deprived of the ability to have coitus with this girl again. She has had her sexual awakening with this artificial being and still has emotions for this being but also has to deal with the fact that A, her first sexual relationship is on hiatus or will be altered from what is commonly assumed such a relationship it should be and this is a person who is defined by not fitting in, by being an outsider, by being damaged by her own thoughts and by the way people react to her in much the same way Hicks is. Uh, they make a big point, you don't see it as much in the miniseries but in the interviews with Verheiden, he talks about how Hicks is also segregated from his fellow soldiers. Not only was he part of a troop that was massacred, and so he's got all of the PTSD that was related to that, but also when he is with other soldiers in, in other units, he doesn't fit in because they are averse to him. They think that he might have some sort of an infection, you know, some impregnation, like maybe an alien was eventually going to rip out of them because they don't understand how the whole alien thing works. So he is no longer the soldier he once was, a defining aspect of his personality because he's not allowed to be, not only by his own traumas, but by the reaction of other people to those traumas and the literal scars that he bears as a relation to that. So not only does Newt Billy have a connection to him via their shared traumas and the fact that he is probably one of the only people who has been a constant in her life, even if there's an estrangement, he's still there over the years to some degree. And she, he's there, even if it's a, even if they'd never met again before they're reunited in that miniseries, there's still that connection there. And they are both the same in the way that their lives are defined by what the aliens have done to them. So she feels a connection to him and if she's not been raised by this person, if you assume that the Hicks character looks like Michael Bean, he's an attractive and fit man. Probably the best coupling for her since until she meets somebody else who had experiences like she's had, he would be a natural person for her to feel an attraction for, especially because they are not related and he does not seem to be a real paternal figure in her life. He might be more of an uncle or she might just plain have daddy issues or again, I think mostly is that he's one of the only people in the universe that can actually understand the experiences that she's had. And I think that there's a natural sexual tension there. She's also a person who has grown into womanhood and to some degree modeled herself after Ripley. And that's demonstrated often in the miniseries, how she's sort of grown into that Ripley role, which is mm, a, a yeah. characteristic that Hicks was attracted to. So these are people that we come into this with the baggage of feeling like that's a father-daughter relationship, but that isn't necessarily so. And I think that very clearly their Hayden was playing with those dynamics in both of these miniseries. You create the Butler-Bueller character, you create a circumstance where it seems as though, whether as a father figure or as a potential suitor, there is a strong aversion in Hicks for Newt to be engaging in a relationship with this other soldier. And just the fact that she's in a relationship with another soldier is a curious thing because is she looking for a replacement to this heroic figure that saved her life repeatedly as a child? Isn't there sort of a weird daddy issue even with Butler because he's fulfilling a role very similar to the 
role that Hicks had played in her life earlier on. So there's already a, a weird dynamic there. But especially in the second miniseries, in book two, there's a lot of sexualizing of the new character, which again, I'm uncomfortable with because not only is she a child in my mind because the movie that I've latched onto the most, the movie that's been a part of my life for a majority of my life and something I have a great passion for, she's a child in that movie. But then when you have the sequels, we never get to see her grow up. She's frozen in that child form because in the sequel, we know that she dies and she never gets to grow up. So she's always a child. I, as a fan, never get to see her develop into a woman. And then I have this distance with these miniseries because again, I'm reading them as an adult. There's a cognitive dissonance because having lived with Alien 3 for decades, I've accepted that as the canon. Whatever issues I might have had with it or might still have with it, which we'll address when that adaptation comes up, I've accepted that's what happened. And so while I want to see the continuing adventures of Hicks and Newt, this isn't really that either because these characters have developed in ways that I wouldn't have envisioned them from that experience. Reading them, I don't hear Hicks and Newt. I hear somebody writing characters that have a vague semblance of those two characters, but I don't feel like that's where those characters would have ended up. But part of it is that I'm reading these books decades after they came out, where they were written within a few years of the movies coming out, and I don't think that the ideas of who those characters were and how their relationships should be were nearly as concrete at that time as they would become. And if you're a writer, you're going to want to explore as much terrain as you can. Having been deprived of Ripley, I can definitely see where you'd want to play around with that psychosexual tension. I'm averse to it, especially in book two, because there's so much sexualizing of Newt, a person that in my mind is still a child. Let's be honest. She's still specifically noted in the first miniseries as being a minor. She may be nubile, but we're still talking about someone who's probably in the 16 to 70 year old range. I don't know what age of consent is in the far future, but they specifically say that she's a minor who is not able to decide whether or not she's going to be lobotomized while she is committed to the sanitarium in the first miniseries. And not having any blood relatives, there's nobody who can contradict the doctors who determined that lobotomy is the way to go for her. So beyond all the psychic trauma that she's still processing and the problematic relationship she has with Hicks, there's also the simple fact that this, this is a person who's not yet quite a woman who definitely is experiencing sexual awakenings under, again, very traumatic circumstances. And having lost this person, this sort of like Hicks surrogate, as a potentially a viable sexual partner, even though I have to stress that coitus is not the only way that two people can have a sexual relationship. But within this context, that seems to be a big problem for both the Butler-Bueller character and the Newt-Billy character, where they're they're not able to see themselves being able to progress in a relationship without that sexual component. So there's just a lot going here, and I can absolutely see where a novelist would want to explore that, because again, this is a four-issue miniseries that's being adapted. That's not a lot of material for a full-length novel. Yeah. So you have to vamp, you have to expand, and since that psychosexual material was clearly in the original work, I can absolutely see where that's where you would expand from. You know, you can say what you picked up on it, whether it's the psychosexual tension or whatever, but so some of the things that she does, at least in the novel, they don't seem like a, a young woman coming of age. Some of those things seem very deliberate and very cruel breaking of a relationship to purposely hurt and create a, a separation between those two, even though I don't know that they necessarily go there in the comic. My only counterpoint or, or retort is like you're coming from it, you know, many years later, which makes sense to me. You've accepted Alien 3 warts and all as canon, but to me, when you say, I never saw Newt as an adult or, you know, whatever you whatever we're designating her as, I, I never saw Newt come of age, that she's frozen in time. From my perspective, I don't think I ever 
had that problem because this was a year or two after I saw Aliens. I can sort of appreciate what you're saying about, regardless of that, that this isn't the continuing adventures you would have liked to have seen. The only thing I can think of is, well, they're not dead. You know what I mean? Like, I think I was young enough that when you're at a certain age and you're reading comics, there's just certain things you're able to take at face value. This, for me, was just sort of in real time. This is kind of like the original Jeff Johnsian subplot. You can't use your classic, awesome, golden age character or whatever it is, and then they show up on the very last page. And I, I kind of feel like Ripley busting in at the end of this is like Earth 2 Superman showing up in Infinite Crisis, or like the Hawkman showing up in JSA, or, or, or I don't know, what, whatever kind of, you know, be, be, people often say Johns does that trope over and over and over again, and it gets boring, right? Like, you know, the end of Doomsday Clock, you had the whole JSA or whatever it was, and things like that, right? But to me, this is like one of those original things. My thought on it is, I see what you're saying, like, she sees Ripley and Hicks, right? And she's like, oh, well, I, I want something like that, too, so I'm gonna find it in this butler guy. But of course, that goes all out of whack, and some of the physicality of that can't be replicated, but some of the stuff she says to him in the novel is, like, he, he's not just a half a man for the whole thing, right? Like, they rig up some doctored, crappy thing, so he's got, like, these little mechanical feet or legs or so something like that, and she makes this crack about she's never gonna get used to that, or... I, I don't remember what it was. I think he was making fun of himself self-deprecatingly, and she just took that and shoved the stake in the heart or whatever, you know? And you're just kind of like, damn. A teenage girl has never been known to demonstrate a facsimile of maturity beyond her years, coupled with a cruelty that could only come from a child who has no idea of what impact those emotional overtures would have on another human being. Mm. That's very much a, a characteristic of a teenager right there. The dream sequence at the beginning of the miniseries where you have that air of sexual violence related to Hicks, I think that part of the intent of that is to give you the sense that like, there's dialogue that the character has where he's basically talking about how maybe Newt knew on some level that Butler was a synthetic mm. and one of the things that was attractive was that there was a certain safety to him because just as Bishop had been torn in half and was still capable of saving her and helping her because he wasn't a, a, a human being he just was a semblance of a human that part of what may have attracted her was on some level recognizing that layer of artificiality so that he couldn't be impregnated he couldn't have a chest burster that Hicks could have that and that she feared his being a flesh and blood human being made him vulnerable and made him capable of not only being a threat to her because he could be impregnated with an alien but also a threat to her because he's a flesh and blood human being that could impregnate her with an actual human baby or impregnate her with an alien via the face hugger or just be at risk of dying on her as everybody else had died on her and fearing investing in him any more emotionally than she already had so again there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't just about a sexual dynamic but also just relationship dynamics fears being manifested in this instance through a sexual quality but not necessarily being sexual although I think that's definitely a component of it so there's just a lot going on there and I can see where they would extrapolate from that the moment where I guess Ripley shows up at the end of this it does kind of have the reenactment the revisiting of that potential of what you were hoping for with the family unit type thing once all those prominent figures are in play in the same room at the same time then there's the potential for that dynamic whatever your takeaway is this 
psychosexual stuff or the fact that Hicks drunk himself into a stupor and there's this weird potential when they all come back together in the same unit that maybe through that you can get back to whatever that classic vibe was. I mean, I know it doesn't always work out that way, right? Like, I mean, you, you were all happy to see Earth 2 Superman when uh, he showed up Infinite Crisis, but then the rest of the characters turned out to be a bunch of scumbags and that's not what you were expecting. Things could go pear-shaped from this point on, but I think the potential of Ripley showing up in the big splash, like that was like one of those things where I felt like I was just as wide-eyed and happy to see Ripley as Newt was. Hey man, she was doing the big guns cable shit way before cables. We're talking about the issues with likeness and Sigourney Weaver wanting her likeness money, and again we go back to Alien 3, where Michael Biehn made more money off of a single image of himself in that movie than he did for the entirety of Aliens, specifically because he was super pissed off that they killed off his character, and so they were going to have to pay through the nose to get that picture of him in that movie, because he so resented them getting rid of Hicks in that way, and given fan reaction, he was right to hold out, and I'm glad he got his payday over that, because I think that there was a punitive quality to that choice fans approve of, because there is a devoted following for not just Ripley, but also Hicks and Newt, that wanted their pound of flesh over his early demise. Well, yeah, when you when you watch all those special features on Alien 3, I think I am that fan. I think I was that guy that was like, yeah, fucking A, Michael Bean, you stick it to him. I, I fully own up to it. I have a big fucking chip on my shoulder because of Alien 3. I can't be uh, super diplomatic about it or anything. Psychologically, that makes these miniseries enhanced for me somehow. I do really like this miniseries. This is the first Alien comic I've ever read. I didn't know that the Walt Simonson heavy metal thing existed until 10 or 20 years ago. I think I was young enough that I probably didn't pick up on any of this stuff. You know, I got my head in the blinders. I can see it if you point it out to me, but there's some stuff about that where I'm just like, I don't don't know if ignores the right word, but it's like, though new, you're you're calling her young and nubile and all this other stuff. Like, I'm looking at that page, right? And, And people will probably say, Derek, you're a fucking idiot. Look at this splash page. She's having a dream sequence. There's all these weird, creepy dudes in the window in the splash page, and the alien's right there, practically ready to spread cheeks, and she's screaming, and she's surrounded by all this weird, protrudy stuff, and it's like, what are you, crazy? Of course, that's a psychosexual image. I was young enough where, number one, probably that didn't register. It was just the horror of a a person I like being trapped by a queen, and, and that it was in this weird kind of dream sequence, right? And maybe this is just my own weird comprehension of certain things. Newt, to me, at least in this, regardless of whether the author did or the the artist did, I never sexualized Newt in this book. And I kind of feel like the same way about a character like Wonder Woman. Like, I'm sure there are people out there, right, that are like, oh, Wonder Woman's hot. I've never looked at Wonder Woman as a character that I've ever wanted to objectify. I just never looked at her that way. And I don't think I ever looked at Newt that way, regardless of whether it was this miniseries and obviously when it's the James Cameron film, like, you know, super obviously. But even in this, I just I I guess I just never thought of it that way. I think that the specter of the Comics Code Authority definitely hangs heavy on this period. Comic books were noted as being essentially stunted by the fears of the 1950s, the Comics Code Authority. There was elements that they really couldn't explicitly explore for a very long time. And to some degree, you saw that in the underground comics. But the novelistic approaches to comic book storytelling, especially as applied to genre materials, licensed product, superhero stuff, you didn't see that novelistic approach happening until at the very beginning in the mid 
movies with things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, but even they had limits placed on them by the expectations what the audience would tolerate you doing with a Batman, for instance. And I think it took into the 21st century before the publishers were willing to go to some of those places. But of course, you see a lot of that stuff in Watchmen, and it's not necessarily done in a cinematic fashion. It's not necessarily done to the degree that you could in a novel. But obviously, you could get into a lot of that more mature material, particularly sexual material, in a novel that you couldn't in any other venue, in part because you could always get away with more in text than you could with anything that's a visual medium. Uh, you could get away with stuff in novels you couldn't get away with in film for the longest time because what you described in a novel not only is it something that would have been deemed obscene oft times for up until the Hayes Code was disregarded in the late 60s but even something like A Midnight Cowboy which doesn't show any explicit sex just some nudity and implication of sex was still an X-rated movie in its time. So it took a long time before cinema could catch up with novels and of course I remember reading novels that I could check out from my school library especially in middle school that depicted scenes that I absolutely could not have seen in a film you know without a parent being present that sort of thing so I think what it is what we expect from comic books did not parallel what you could get in a novel in 1993 until the 21st century and so I think that's a cognitive dissonance where it feels like the novel is doing something that wasn't allowed but they were allowed in novels where they weren't allowed in comic books and so I think that's where some of that comes from that's interesting because listening to the audiobook it's like you're reading like a prayer for Owen Meany or some shit whereas this Dark Horse comic feels like the furthest thing from that right to me at least Persianopedia the comic was collected as a deluxe limited edition embossed hardcover featuring Smith's own binding released in September 1990 under the title Aliens Book 2 Boves also created an all new painting for the illustrated dust jacket as well as designing special end papers also included were an all new full color painting by Bouvais which serves as a bound in signature plate signed and numbered by both the author and artist this 112 page volume was limited to 2,500 copies in the United Kingdom Aliens Book 2 is serialized and reprinted in six parts in Aliens Magazine Volume 1 number 1 through 6 from February through July 1991 a trade paperback collecting the series was published by Titans Books in June 1991 titled Aliens Book 2 in Germany Book 2 is serialized and reprinted in two parts in the anthology series Aliens number 4 through 5 from June through September of 1991 in September 1993 Aliens Book 2 was again collected for inclusion in The Complete Aliens a deluxe limited edition hardcover which for the first time collected all of the early Dark Horse Aliens comics into a single volume. The slipcovered edition was Smithsone and featured a foil stamped bonded leather binding with specially printed end papers and included a gallery featuring many of the collection's original covers as well as a signature page signed by many of the creators and featuring new Aliens art from the artists who worked on the original comics. The release was edited by Kij Johnson and limited to only 500 copies. In October 2016, a special reprint of Aliens Nightmare Asylum No. 4 was published through Celebrity Authentics featuring exclusive cover art by Corbin Kern depicting Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley the first time the actress's likeness had appeared in an Aliens comic book as well as a standard release Celebrity Authentics offered a variety of signed editions featuring signatures from the cast of Aliens in April 2017 the original version of the series was published for the first time in 24 years when it was collected as part of Aliens the original comic series volume 2 this version was a hardcover oversized 8x12 format collector's edition featuring the original unedited 1989 version of the story including the original characters of Hicks and Newt. This collection also included the sequel, Aliens Female War. The miniseries was collected again as part of Aliens The Essential Comics Volume 1 in 2018, and most recently in the 2021 Marvel Omnibus Aliens The Original Years Volume 1. In a trivia section, Xenopedia notes, several ideas from the comic were later prominently recycled in other media in the Alien franchise. For example, Xenomorphs killing one of their 
own and using the dead creature's acid blood to escape a contained area, as happens aboard the cargo ship near the beginning of the story, was later used by the clone xenomorphs in Alien Resurrection. Similarly, the manner in which Spears marks his trained xenomorphs on the head with identifying numbers reappeared in the 2010 video game Aliens vs. Predator. The xenomorph hives seen on Earth towards the end of the comic greatly resemble H.R. Geiger's concept art for the Egg Silo, a structure cut from Alien during the film's development. The back cover artwork from the four original issues of the series form one complete image of a queen when placed together. Oddly enough, Aliens Book 2 was also my first Aliens comic. As I've mentioned previously, I had a longing to read the Aliens books, but I just didn't have access. I didn't have comic shops. I was buying off a newsstand, so the only way I could even see that this stuff existed was through the mail order advertisements in newsstand books. Around 1991, I was getting my comic books from a flea market comic shop. They had one shelf of new comics you could buy. Advanced comics is what they ordered out of. Uh, so that was the first time I ever got distributor catalog and could actually place pre-orders for stuff that wasn't on the shelves. And they had a fairly small back issue selection, maybe 10 long boxes total. And they had one issue of the Aliens comic. And if I remember correctly, because I don't have strong memories of the actual comic book itself, just vague impressions and maybe a few moments. But my belief is that it was issue number three of book two. And reading the book, I I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I did not appreciate the artwork at all. And I knew that what I was reading was not what I wanted from an Aliens comic book. And as a result of this, I proceeded to not read book two for 30 years. And so now that I can go back and read the miniseries within the context, not only of the miniseries as a whole, but also as a continuation of the first miniseries, I understand what they were going for. My general feeling is I don't know what the fuck's going on. This is not what I want from my Aliens comic. In reading blurbs and, and interview material from the time period, Mark Verhaden makes it clear that he's still writing the first miniseries. He only has an idea of what the next miniseries is going to be. And things did not go as expected. The original artists for the miniseries were supposed to be the folks who did the Roachmill comic book. And that was going to be line art. And I don't know if the intention was for it to be a color at the time. I think it was. And then, of course, that fell through. And then you go from line art to painted artwork. And this is also one of if not the first books that Dark Horse ever did in color. And so they haven't figured out how to do color yet. And if you go back and you look at the original comic books, they don't look great. You could tell that they're doing the wrong kind of coloring on the wrong kind of paper. And the printers seem to not really know how to do it correctly as well. And of course, they're not just doing color, but they're doing painted artwork as well. And the artist is the person who, while of course he had done colored painting in the past, hadn't necessarily done that in sequential artwork, figuring out how to adapt his black and white gray tone art into color sequentials I think that he's struggling as well and so I very much struggle with his miniseries it's not a hard read I mean I joke I literally know what's going on but I don't feel like the creators have a firm grasp of what they are doing or they don't have the space to tell the story that's been set up and I think that there's a lot of stuff that's been set up in the first miniseries that resolves as a consequence of where specifically the publisher Mike Richardson wanted that story to end up and so having reached that conclusive point, there's these threads that are kind of continuing in terms of themes from the first miniseries, but I don't think that they're adequately explored, and I think they were probably better handled in the first miniseries, and there, there's a very much a sense of this being a middle chapter, and not in the good way like Empire Strikes Back, where it leaves you on a cliffhanger, more in the, this entire miniseries feels like filler between two other miniseries that I'm going to have greater interest in, especially knowing that the third miniseries is Verhaden's final one, and so it's a bit of a trip 
trilogy. And of course, they're going to have to resolve where Ripley's been this entire time and probably fill in the backstory of their relationships and, and, and what had happened in the time period between Aliens and the three miniseries. I, I really don't care for the miniseries. And I really feel like it's just sort of a bunch of filler material. And it's a lot of people running around to different places without really mattering much. None of the characters that are introduced in the miniseries survive to the end of the miniseries. And with the exception of the Butler slash Bueller character, everybody's essentially exactly where they were at the end of the first miniseries. They're stuck on a spaceship, flying away from an alien infestation, barely surviving, not really in control of where they're headed. Ultimately, they end up where they started too, because apparently the next miniseries is going to be on Earth. They fled Earth at the end of the last miniseries, or returning to Earth in this com- upcoming miniseries. So uh, all they really did is go to a space station in orbit from Earth before going back to Earth. So it just seems very pointless to me. Sounds like you're saying that this was the Back to the Future 2 of the Alien Dark Horse series. <laughs> but the thing is, I think there's a lot of interesting things that happen in Back to the Future 2. So it's almost like if somehow Back to the Future 3 was the middle chapter instead of the concluding mm, chapter. Okay. So okay. It, it's just because the one thing that matters about 3 is that's the final resolution of the story, particularly Doc Brown's story, because really Marty is set by the end of the first movie. And it's really about Doc Brown's arc for the second and third movies. And seeing the resolution is why 3 exists, but all the fun stuff is in the second one. Uh, another major issue I have with the story is this is supposed to be taking place within 15 days of the alien infestation of Earth. And I think that there's very much a frog in boiling water situation here. I, th- I feel like you could get to this place that this general could take over and do all this heinous stuff that he does slowly over time under these extraordinary circumstances in isolation. But it's very hard for me to believe that in 15 days, things have broken down to this degree without there being an open mutiny. Now, I'm a lefty, so I have my views of the military that maybe are not as pristine as somebody who's more of a rah-rah kind of person. But I also don't believe that you could have a military force become as depraved as you would have to be to do the actions the general demands of them in that span of a time. And I also really feel like it's a missed opportunity since Hicks is still a soldier at heart that you don't have a situation where you're seeing him relate to the general and maybe seeing him in one light and then having that light become jaundiced because Mm. he's not the person he thinks he is and so on and so forth. I I really felt like there could have been more to that relationship but everything is in such hyperdrive that you just don't get to develop that and I feel like it's a missed opportunity and I did wonder if maybe they got into that more in the novelization since they had a little bit more breathing room there. I I don't know man. I see what you're saying right? You could have played with it where maybe initially you looked up to the kid. Like maybe this is the good distinction. Decidedly in the novel he felt like Negan to me. He was cruel. He was mean. He did all these horrible fucking things. If you're in the path of that guy you gotta smile and eat the shit sandwich until you get the chance to either take him out or get the hell out of there right? That's what that felt like whether it was the comic or the novel but especially the novel. But then you think about it like maybe they could have done more of a governor thing with him where when you first show up you're like god damn he's got all these people working together and even though everything's gone to shit in the last 15 days and earth is overrun this guy might be our last hope even have it to be like come on new let's get with the program and let's join up with this guy and everything like this may be the guy that helps solve all these problems for us then you reveal they're tossing privates into the egg chambers and then you reveal that somebody fucks up a communique and they get dumped into the back to tank with the alien 
And it seems like in this context, it's very straightforward. This is the military industrial complex and they're bad. And we're, we're telling you this straight up. This guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There definitely wasn't any room to play. Obviously, that was probably done purposely, right? But could have made it a semi twist or had some fun playing with Hicks loyalty. Hey, you know, I am a soldier. I should be following orders. But clearly these orders are being given by somebody who's off his rock. You have that arc. If you want to be the Hicks fanboy too, though, right? There is that aspect where it's like, even though this version of Hicks has had his share of problems and had his his share of dependencies and, and different things like that, the fact that Hicks can see through this guy a mile away, but immediately go into smiles mode and and placate him. This fucker wants something from us. I think that's something like they say in the the novel or whatever. You know, like that that kind of idea. Like there there is that aspect that like you know the, the, the kind of fanboy aspect. Like oh well, Hicks is still cool. Like Hicks knows his shit, despite everything he's been through in these comic versions or novels or whatever. When it comes to the important shit, you know, survival. Right? He's still got his head on straight. If you did play with that a little more, then you might be dampening down Hicks's fan aura or whatever, but I could see it from both angles. For me, I think it's told in the sense of a comic book. By the time you get to the end of the first issue, the twist is, what are you fuckers doing with my specimens? That's the surprise. Like, you got the twist in one page, and I think what you're saying is you could have somehow drawn that twist out a little further, expanding on potential relationships between these characters, but then you wouldn't have had that splash page at the end of issue one where it's like, what the fuck are you guys doing with my specimens? You would have lost that. It's like it's a trade-off, I think. Hashtag socially distant, Anthony Berconti, Baby Skeletor, Between the Pages blog, CH, Canoes, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, The Hammer Strikes, Geeky Stuff, and Hashtag VoiceOver, History of Comics on Film, Iowa's Joe Crawford, James Chase, Jeffrey Brown, They, Them, JMT Productions, Kirk Spencer Needs Money for His CPAP, Connor Knudsen, Paid Abod, Ian Dwip, Paul K. Bisson, Ryan Daly, E. M. Daddio, Siskoid, Trekker Talk, Ufta, and One Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast. Food Lotta liked our WordPress post for Aliens Book One Outbreak 1988. Illegal Machine wrote, Frank is absolutely killing these Dark Horse Presents Aliens Podcasts. Give it a listen. Great, interesting work on Dark Horse's place in the comic scene in the 80s. Debase wrote, These have been nothing short of fascinating. While I knew of the scene, Aliens and Predator weren't really my thing at the time. Frank's in depth examination of these books makes me want to track them down and have a read. This has been a Rolled Spine Podcast. All audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws. No copyright infringement is intended. Coming in September, Aliens Book 3, Earth War. With co-host Derek William Crabb.